Welcome to Underlords Radio Hour. Hello there, and welcome to Underlords Radio Hour, a socially distant podcast. My name is Josh, and on the phone, socially distant from me, I've got my friend Brian. How are you today, Brian? Hello. I'm, I'm fine. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I'm great. Um, boy, it, uh, it's been a while, but, you know, here we are again doing Underlords Radio Hour, and uh, we've got an exciting show today, don't we? We do. Um, we just finished up um, an episode on uh, the Underlords' first world tour. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so... Um, and that one kind of finished up um, with a, uh, you know, they, they come back from the Strange World Tour with strange occurrences and odd happenings, and they come back to their, uh, kind of their headquarters, so to speak, I guess you could say, Vinyl Destination, and uh, their manager, Linus Velour, is not there, and he it's, he's put the place in, uh, uh, put a young college student, Yasko. Yes. In, in, uh, in place to run it. And he leaves a, a letter for them to read. And it kind of, uh, how would you describe that letter real the, briefly? I think the letter is just kind of telling them, hey, welcome back. Here's your new life as the Underlords. And he has some, some stuff established for them. But then the, the letter ends with a warning. And the warning is of an enemy in their midst, kind of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So it basically is telling them to be on the lookout and and to be careful for this enemy and who or what that enemy is is uh uncertain of course at this point so yet to be revealed yes yeah we'll have to keep going forward to figure out uh, or to find out what happens so with that in mind uh i'm 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 gonna take care of the reading on this one excellent and uh shall we get to it let's do it all right here we go Autumn, 1989. Meetings. None of them were sure what to make of Valour's letter. The whole thing seemed not only out of character, but downright weird. No one said anything out loud, but there was that sickening sense setting in, the kind reported by victims of horrible car accidents, that they could feel it happening moments before it actually did. One thing was for certain. The arrangements Valour had made were very much to the liking of the underlords of the overworld. For starters, there was more money, and that was good. It wasn't enough to squander on an entirely reckless life, but new guitars and even cars were within reach. Except for Brent, who refused to part with his beloved Pontiac Firebird. And there was more freedom, which they coveted above anything else. Velour had taken the liberty of renting a mammoth old brick house on the city's affluent south side, which was immediately christened Underlord's Manor by Justin. It was a little run down and probably wouldn't pass inspection for a sale, but they didn't care. Each member of the band moved in, claiming a room in the upper portion of the house and setting up the basement as their new rehearsal space, where extended jam sessions carried on into the early morning hours. They lived like celebrities, even though they weren't. 
To say that the underlords of the overworld had been forgotten would have been an, an exaggeration, but a veil of uncertainty crossed the faces of old friends and schoolmates they happened to meet when there was any discussion of the band, and practically no one outside the four bandmates could recall any specifics surrounding the infamous Halloween pageant performance at Northdale High School just two years earlier. The local newspaper showed no interest in talking to them, and Des Moines nightclubs acted as if they'd never heard of the underlords of the overworld. Their families remembered, but seemed to regard the band as if they were a phase that would inevitably pass like the belief in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, except for Walt and Bonnie Clark, that is, who maintained the firm conviction that their son had been lost upon the wayward path of sin. Brian's banishment from the Clark household was upheld with impunity. For his part, the guitar player showed no remorse and settled comfortably into this exile at Underlord's Manor. Dale Babbitt's hands were smudged brown with the kind of filth that doesn't wash off easily as he repeatedly shoved the double cheeseburger into his mouth. Brent looked away, but not before noticing that at least two of the former principal's teeth were missing. The decline didn't end there. Babbitt's hair and beard had grown longer and grayer, with tiny chunks tangled into both. His long gray coat, torn and threadbare, had been patched at both elbows. Your friend takes a long time in the bathroom, Babbitt said through a mouthful of half-chewed french fries. He's nervous, Brent said. He hasn't seen you since you tried to have the varsity basketball team throw rotten eggs at us. I told you it was a mistake to bring him in on this. Babbitt shook his head in what looked like half disagreement and half confusion. Don't be stupid. Walcott is the weak link in your chain, the easiest one to convince. We have to start with him. He began to say something else, but stopped abruptly when Josh returned to the table and sat down. Keeping his eyes pensively fastened to the chicken sandwich on the plate before him, Josh finally spoke. So, you're looking, uh, well, Principal Babbitt? You can eat those fries, Babbitt asked, scooping up a handful off the bass player's plate. Not anymore. Brent cut in. Look, Principal Babbitt has been looking into this for a while now, and he has some concerns about Linus. Concerns, Babbitt hacked. That son of a bitch is dangerous. I know he's the one who murdered Danny Bonanno. That's the private investigator, right? Josh asked, half smiling. The one you hired? Strange, you don't look like you can barely afford lunch at a dive like this. He turned to glare at Brent. This is exactly what Linus was talking about in his letter. This washed-up loser is trying to ruin everything again. Got it all figured out, do you? Babbitt sneered, reaching out to grip and squeeze Josh's chicken sandwich into a formless lump of bun, chicken, lettuce, and tomato. Mature, asshole. Really mature, Josh said, loud enough to draw a few alarmed glances from the surrounding tables at Little John's Burgers. Then his lips curled upward, just slightly. Of course, unlike you... I can afford to go buy another one. Arrogant little punk, Babbitt muttered, wiping his grease-stained hands on his coat. As Josh rose from the booth, Brent pulled him back down by the shoulder. You need to hear him out. Josh folded his arms and waited, staring blankly at the former principal, who, after several long moments, finally spoke. Fine, you're right, Walcott. I'm a loser. 
I've got no job, no money, and my wife left me after I got canned. I've got nothing left. You know, there are other jobs out there. I heard the post office is hiring package sorters. You're missing the point. After what happened at the Halloween pageant, I became obsessed. When you guys were up on stage playing that music, I saw... I saw... Babbitt's eyes widened into huge bloodshot orbs. Uh, okay. There was something there, on stage with you. Something not human. By God, I still see it every time I close my eyes to go to sleep at night. His voice grew louder as he spoke, and drew more looks of concern and offense from around the diner. Anticipating more trouble coming, a few people got up and hurried out. And I had to know what it was. Had to know what you'd gotten yourselves mixed up with. Thus the private investigator. Yes, yes. A pudgy chef in a dirty apron stepped out from behind the counter. Hey, you fellows okay over there? We don't want no trouble, you hear? Babbitt took a few long breaths and lowered his voice. Danny Bonanno knew that Velour smelled like last week's fish. He was convinced there was something going on in that back room of that record store. That's when he disappeared. After Banana was killed, it was just one dead end after another. I even tried breaking into that damned record store, but got chased off by some stray dogs. A dachshund and a schnauzer, I think. But that's when I remembered Newton Coolidge. Uh, who? Old army buddy of mine. Saw action in Korea together, and I saved his ass a few times. So he owed me big. Big. And this is going somewhere, Josh asked, perusing the menu for a replacement meal. Coolidge works for the Social Security Administration in Washington, some sort of big-shot administrator for them. Anyway, it took months to get in touch with him, to get him to return my calls, but he finally came through. And? Babbitt paused for a sip of coffee from the steaming styrofoam cup next to him on the table. Linus Velour was born in Gary, Indiana in 1950. Josh nodded. Okay, that sounds about right but disappeared at the age of five in 1955. No trace, no body, nothing. His parents never gave up hope. Never had a funeral, so no death certificate. Josh shrugged. His folks, Milt and Joyce Velour, were then killed in a mysterious boating accident in 1959. They didn't have any other children. It's a little strange, Josh said. But I'm not sure where you're going with this. Then all of a sudden, Linus Velour shows up here, opens a record store in Des Moines in 1986. Where's he been all these years? Brent asked. That's the question. That's the question, all right, Babbitt said, arising from the booth. And one that you guys had better figure out post-haste. Josh tossed the menu aside. Let me get this straight. You're saying that Linus Velour disappeared for over 30 years and then suddenly turns up here in Des Moines to open a record store and manage our band. Shuffling towards the exit, Babbitt pulled his coat tighter and paused to look back. You're still not too bright, Wolcott. I'm saying that Linus Velour died as a child back in 1955. Whoever, or whatever, has taken his place is a whole different kind of trouble. Thanks for lunch, fellas. Best I've eaten in weeks. Babbitt pulled his coat tight and walked out into the cold rain. That could have gone better. 
the man said over the drone of country music blaring over the PA system as couples pressed against each other to the bouncy backbeat of the music. Brian said nothing, just sat and stared at the bottle of Michelob on the bar in front of him. You old enough to drink that? You a cop? The man laughed. A cop. No, that, my friend, I most certainly am not. Taking a swallow, Brian glanced sideways. In khaki slacks and a black turtleneck, the man who had pulled up a stool next to him looked just as out of place as the underlords of the overworld had been playing on a stage at the Midnight Steer, Burlington, Iowa's biggest country and western bar. But more than just being out of place, his ears were a little too large, along with overly bushy black eyebrows. Ron Evanstein, the man said with an extended hand that Brian ignored. And you're Brian Clark. So you know who I am, Brian muttered. Ovenstein motioned to the bartender to bring two more beers. Oh, more than that, I'm a fan. I saw you guys three times on tour last summer. Davenport, Saginaw, and Southampton. Well, you get around. I make it my business to do so, when I have an interest, that is. So what went wrong tonight? Brian shook his head and finished his beer. Come now, Ovenstein said. I've seen the Underlords electrify an audience. Send them into a frenzy. Tonight, it wasn't just your playing, which was abysmal. You were completely lifeless up there. Not our kind of place, I guess, Brian said. Then why are you here? Ovenstein asked. Brian shrugged. Our manager set up the gig. Well, you certainly didn't look very happy up there. None of you. Not easy when you're being pelted with onion rings. Fair enough. Ron said, nodding. Kind of like last night in Chicago. Oh, you were there too? Sure was. And you guys were just as awful as tonight. It's a goddamn yuppie bar, Brian growled. Bunch of stockbrokers drinking martinis and trying to get laid. What do they care about music, much less good music? All they want to hear is Robert Palmer and Billy Ocean. I have to admit, I never thought I'd see you guys get booed off stage. What was Velour thinking? Brian paused and turned towards Ovenstein. You know Linus? For a moment, Ovenstein wore an expression of surprise, like he'd been caught doing something red-handed. But this look quickly melted into a smile. We go way back. Used to play in a band together back in the day. Then we managed a few bands together. Did he send you? Christ, we haven't seen him in months. Lately, he just sends letters with instructions. Gigs and so on. No. No, he has no idea I'm here, but when I heard that he'd discovered a hot new act, I had to come see for myself. Linus always had a knack for discovering talent. Brian reached for the beer that Ovenstein had bought for him. Oh yeah? Sure. He was just never able to hang on to it. It always flamed out. What do you mean? Before he responded, Ovenstein threw back his bottle and finished half a beer in one long gulp. Poor promotion. Internal conflicts. Bad decisions. Sound familiar? It's not like that, Brian said. Not yet, but just look at this disaster of a mini-tour he scheduled, and between the holidays, no less. This is when you should be hard at work on your follow-up record. We're writing new stuff. Need to strike while the iron's hot, Ovenstein said. Oh, and by the way, do you know how many records you've sold? Around 30,000. Ovenstein chuckled and rapped on the bar with his knuckles. It should have gone gold by now, 
and it would have under proper management. So who exactly are you? Brian asked. Reaching into his wallet, he produced a business card and tossed it on the bar in front of Brian. It read, Ron Ovenstein, Senior Vice President, Apostate Records. Brian made no move to pick up the card. If I may be so bold, just what kind of deal does Valour have you in? Ovenstein asked. Like what? You know, albums under contract, publishing, royalties, merchandising. Uh... Ovenstein shook his head. My God, it's just like before. What are you talking about? My friend, if you only knew how many promising young bands Linus Vluer has brought to the brink of success, but in the end it always falls apart. So you're saying we should sign with you? No, 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 Ovenstein said, raising his hands in a gesture of surrender. I wouldn't suggest anything until my attorney was able to see what kind of deal you're tangled up in. Attorney? Again, Ovenstein shook his head. Please tell me you guys have legal representation. Xavier Afan is our legal counsel at Apostate. Best in the business. Brian said nothing, just stared at the business card as Ovenstein climbed off his stool. Well, anyway, just some food for thought, I suppose. My number's on the card. You can always call if you have any questions or just want to chat. All right, nice job. Yeah. So. so. So yeah, this was this was a, a longer chapter, uh, or I should say, a longer segment uh, for the reading, um, and it kind of had three main sections in it. I mean, the chapter is called meetings uh, because each section kind of deals in some way or another with meetings of, of characters. Yeah, and, and this this chapter is really just setting the table for not to give anything away, but setting the table for the book's climax. And so you've really got some things established. You've got the Underlord's lifestyle established, where they're living together, they're working as a band. Uh, they're not really celebrities, you know, but they're kind of living like celebrities, it says. So it just, again, kind of shows that almost otherworldly existence, where they're almost out of step with the reality of the people around them, like friends and family. So that's, yeah, go ahead. That type type of thing is, I mean, that's par for the course for anybody that actually does a a living, you know, in in music or in, you know, traveling carnivals or, you know, people in in the entertainment industry kind of deal with that to one degree or another. Right, right. And, you know, so... Hopefully the reader is getting the sense that this is what's happened to this band. And, and they've made this transition. They've crossed a threshold. And now they're living the results of that passage. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is there anything specific about that section of the chapter that you want to highlight or pinpoint? Um, you know, I don't think, I don't know if there's anything specific. Um, again, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back on it. And again, it's been a while since reading it, you know, uh, that their families still kind of look at it as, you know, it's a phase 
that they'd get through. So their families don't quite see it, and, and the people around them, again, don't quite see it for what it is. Which is, again, I think kind of the nexus of a story like this. That, that makes me think of uh, in the Rush documentary, Beyond the Light of Stage, when Geddy Lee said, you know, it wasn't until my mother saw me on TV that she that, it, that she got it. That right. It's like, oh, he's an entertainer, you know. So it's like, even though they're coming back and, and they're off tour and everything, there's still this kind of strange disconnect. Yeah. the world that they experience and, the, and, and everybody else around them. And, and, and continuing um, to work, you know, I mean, continuing to write and rehearse. I mean, these are really the salad days for the Underlords of the Overworld. So with that in mind, then we can move that to the next scene. They, they end up with a, at a, at a, like a burger diner. Yes. Place with, um, Meeting up with the old high school principal, Dale Babbitt. Yeah, and, and he's a character that has uh, surfaced and resurfaced throughout the book. He's had a bit of a rise and then a fall. And now it, it is apparent that through Brent, he is reaching out to the Underlords to warn them of you know the danger that they're in. And he's tried this before. And was kind of brushed off, and now Brent is taking it a little bit more seriously, uh, and and you know the and, and kind of brought it to the under to the other members of the Underlords, except for Justin. Justin is still not in the loop in this. Justin's a little bit peeled off in his own direction. So yeah, and what's kind of interesting to me, um, just kind of trying to step back and look at this from, just from a reader's standpoint, is they just got a warning from. Valour, right. That there's a wolf in sheep's clothing, and along comes Dale Babbitt, who is, as you mentioned, he's already warned Brent once before. And now he's telling the rest of the guys, except for Justin, like you said. So it's, it, they're kind of being squeezed from different angles. It they're, is. They're going down a wrong path, but they don't. But which path is the right one? I guess you know. Yeah, it's it's that inevitable pressure. And again, it shows, you know, that's, it's, it's again thematic of you've crossed into a different world and that different world has different pressures and different threats involved with it. So it becomes more complicated, you know, and I think a lot of bands go through this. A lot of bands that make it big, there's kind of that early phase of we want to make it so bad. We want to make it so bad. And then when you make it, the world changes, and and it's not quite as easy. It's more complicated than it than you thought it was going to be. It's not just, you know, groupies and money yeah. and all of that. Well, all, a lot of bands have it that kind of all for one, one for all, you know, mentality when they are on their way up, and then once they've made it, then there's all kinds of different hands in the cooking jar, so to speak, and yeah. different pressures and. Um, I'd like to think that the story we're creating with this is uh, a much more colorful and interesting hopefully take than your typical, you know, rock star. Well, story. yeah, I mean, you know, you've got the demons involved and 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 other various creatures which which, you know. So yeah, that makes it it, it so, does. I think I like to yeah. think it does. So Okay, so they 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 leave that meeting. It's 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 not it's it's, it's fairly inconclusive about what what they need to do yeah because of the complexity yeah and then the third of these scenes in this chapter 
involves Brian separately. Yes. Uh, separated from the rest of the group. So they're, they're off playing kind of a local gig, right? Yep. Um, regional gig, I should say. And um, Brian ends up in a, in a conversation with this character named Ron Ovenstein. Can you elaborate on that just briefly? Yeah, so this gig doesn't go very well. So, you know, the Underlords have, have gotten used to kind of this mysterious fan base that that really likes them and, and this particular gig which is at a country bar of all places in burlington iowa doesn't go so well and um leaves him a little bit stunned and and a little bit jaded and so this ron ovenstein character shows up and uh is really almost um start it's starting to lay the seeds for deepening the story and really, uh, for it's a little bit of a foreshadowing meeting. So, mm-hmm. you know, with that in mind, obviously not wanting to give too much away here, um, the Ron Ovenstein character is a bit of a premonition or a sign of things to come, and almost like lure, almost like. Um, you know, luring, trying to lure the Underlords away from uh, mm-hmm. Linus Velour. So, again, you know, as we look back at that last chapter, where there's there's an enemy in the midst. I mean, who is that enemy? Is it Ron Ovenstein? Is it Dale Babbitt? You know, is it is it someone mm-hmm. else? So, again, this is all setting the table for what's going to happen at the end of the book of this particular volume. Right. I think that's a that's a good concise uh, discussion of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any other thoughts or anything else you'd like to add? Because I I don't. I'm good. No, I no. I, I'm looking forward to, to wrapping this book up and, and kind of bringing it to to the ending. And and uh, it's been it's been fun to do this. So I, I look forward to, to the next chapter. Okay, then uh, I guess it's just time for a sign off. All right. Well, as always, to our faithful listener or listeners thank you and we hope that you've enjoyed this and we will talk to you again soon bye-bye